to Romance Isn't Dead, episode 40. Today, we are traveling in Florence, but we've lost our Baedekers. Ray, how's it going? We have sunshine. It's a Friday when we're recording this, and I'm not working. So, how do you think I'm doing? (laughs) Oh, wow. You you really do have this huge smile on your face. I am actually, y'all, I am recording this before I work, but fortunately I'm working from home, so I don't really have to be um, lovely. Not that I'm ever lovely, but, you know, I don't have to have my hair done and my face on and all that good stuff. I had to go out the other day to to buy something, and I... (laughs) And the, I called ahead to make certain that the shop had what I needed. And she she did. And I said, okay, well, I have to put my face on. And I realized I hadn't said that in a really long time. And and it's a it's an old, I guess it's a Southern thing. I don't know. But I had to put my face on. But I did. I had to put makeup on and do my hair. And I was like, what is this? It's for the birds, man. Yeah, well... <laughs> I put my face on. It's called moisturizer. <sighs> yeah, no, mine's a little more complicated than that. But I mean, it doesn't take me long. But it was one of those. It was one of those things where I was like, I didn't even think about. it. I was like, oh, well, I've got to put my face on, and I was like, what? Wait. <laughs> and that sounds weird. I find it quite weird because I mean, I'm we're the same age, mm-hmm. and I speak with so many people who are. I mean, my sister is a perfect example. She will put her face on before she goes anywhere. So will my niece. Um, so will a lot of people I know. However, I don't wear makeup. Mm-hmm. I put two different moisturizers on in the morning. I put an anti-aging mask on before I go to bed every night. And that's it. Mm-hmm. That is the extent of my beauty regime. Well, I just with the rest of it my mine's a little more complicated than that but I mean I'm I'm pretty low low maintenance but if I'm gonna go out I like to at least put my you know tinted moisturizer on and slap some mascara on and maybe some eyeliner I don't I don't know it's just I think you just have to find what works for you and just roll with it from there is how it works I think mine's mine's laziness well I mean I just if lazy I works, <laughs> lazy works. I just can't be bothered with the whole um, putting on makeup, faffing around with mascara. I spend a lot of time because, I mean, like many people, my job is incredibly screen heavy. I write for a living and I will stare at a screen for eight, nine hours. Mm-hmm. In fact, I get a, um, while, while I've been working at home, um, I've been working a lot longer hours than that. And I think that the majority of people who are working from home have found that. And my eyes, by the end of the day, I've been rubbing them so much that if I did put mascara on, it would be all over my face. Right. So there's just no point. (laughs) Right. Well, the other thing is you may want to try and invest in some of those blue tinted glasses to help your eyes with the screen time. I have some. I don't wear I don't wear them. My my proper glasses have those. I'm supposed to wear those all the time. Okay, never mind. Have you ever have you ever seen me wearing them? No. Neither's anyone else. <laughs> it's not good. I do admit that by the end of the day, my eyes are incredibly tired. But I only wear my my glasses when I go to the cinema or when I'm gaming. Okay. Well, you heard it here, folks. There it is. 
All right, y'all. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about a room with a view. And uh, <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I, I had forgotten about this, but I, the first time I went to, or the second time I went to Europe, I had seen this movie. I'd seen it, I think, before I went the first time. Well, it but, came out in 1985. Right. So I, I had seen it before the first time I went to Europe. But I think when I was searching for a guidebook, I looked for a Baedeker. <laughs> <laughs> because of this movie just because it just it just seemed so perfectly european to have a baedeker and so i think i wound up with a four or a, a photos but anyway it doesn't really matter it seemed so perfectly european to have a baedeker so i had to look for a baedeker and i might have found one i'm not sure but um yeah i just I actually did not read the book until after I'd seen the movie and I saw, and this time out, I read the book first, then watched the movie immediately afterward. So what order did you do that, Ray? Did you watch the movie first or read the book first? Oh, it looks like she is uh, definitely in the camp of having read the book first. So. Yeah, this time round, uh, this time, well, actually, no, um, have to be honest, this book, actually, um, I, uh, years ago, back in the um, dark ages, when GCSEs had first started in the UK, we had to, between our um our second to last and our last year of our GCSEs we had to produce a self we had to decide for ourselves on a an essay to write and we had to pick the subject get it approved and everything else and I actually wrote about a room with a view and um Lady Chatley's lover mm -hmm. and it was classic or obscenity was the title of the essay and I remember this I was 15 when I wrote it so we are talking 31 years ago I wrote this essay and I'd read Pride and Prejudice uh, not Pride and Prejudice A Room with a View about six times before I wrote the essay and obviously I'd seen the film and uh, the first thing that struck me when I started watching the film again was I realized that this was the this film was the first time I'd ever seen a naked man. Um interesting side note. When, yeah, when I figured we, when we talked to when we first talked about doing this, I went to Amazon. I was like, "You know what? I think I have this DVD, but I have no clue where. You know, it's just not worth the fight. I'll just buy a new one, no big deal." And I saw that several people on Amazon were very fussy um, because apparently they had cut some scenes from the movie and that was one of the scenes that they had cut. Yes. In the DVD. Yes. And well, so, they didn't cut it from mine. No, because you've had it. And I've had it for a very long time. I have yeah. to admit, I have. I think this was one of the first DVDs I ever purchased. Okay, so you've had that DVD, right? And mm -hmm. so, but apparently some of the newer versions, not versions of it, but some of the newer ones, Cuts. they cut that. 
And so last, I was watching the movie last night and, and I was wondering if they were going to cut that scene and they did not, they did not cut the scene from the streaming version. In a strange way, that, that particular scene in the film is quite important. Mm -hmm. Why do you think so? I think it shows, um, because all we've seen previously of George is he's, we know he's kind depressed. Of and, he's, yeah. he's, he's very um, intense. He's very thoughtful, incredibly intelligent, but he overthinks things. And in this one particular scene, it's the first time we really see him as joyful, boyish, a man who's not quite found his place someone who has intense emotion but at the same time can relax and it's the first time we really see that aspect of his personality mm-hmm. well let me let me kind of add to that in terms of I think we need to give our listeners who maybe have not had the joy of a room with a view a read synopsis it. read it yeah, a <laughs> read synopsis. it so the synopsis is basically that Lucy Honeychurch is a young English girl who uh, travels to Florence to Italy for her. <laughs> okay, I will read the back of Ray's. Lift it up a little bit. When Lucy visits Italy with her prim and proper cousin Charlotte, she is on the verge of an experience that will throw her neatly ordered life quite off balance. Back in England, she finds that her relationships with her family, with the unconventional Emersons, and with her supercilious fiancé pull her between the social and sexual proprieties of her upbringing and the spontaneous promptings of her heart. And, of course, it is the heart that wins in this sunniest and most readable of Forrester's novels. And she has to read, she has to sniff the book because it's paperback. So, yeah, not only that, I have had this paperback book since 1986, I think, maybe 87. This book was written, what, 1906? 1908. 1908. It was released. He actually started writing it originally in the front of this book. One of the reasons I got this particular copy when I was doing my GCSEs was because. It had the. He started writing plans for it in 1901, mm-hmm. and then he got distracted. He found her very, very difficult to write. A lot of what he'd originally written for this ended up in a room in um, Where Angels Fear to Tread, mm-hmm. and the original ending of the book, the story, a much less sunny affair than that of A Room with a View, ends inconclusively with Lucy in Rome having abandoned her cousin in Florence. And that's how the original, he envisaged the original book ending. Okay, okay, so this book has a happily ever after in that Lucy, mm. Lucy, uh, eventually throws over the, over the supercilious is the best possible word for Daniel Day Lewis's. Oh, I, I had a lot of words for him. <laughs> um, but supercilious works. Oh, yes. Supercilious. He's arrogant. He's snobbish, yet he actually accuses other people of being snobbish. He doesn't really see Lucy as a person. Okay. So let me. Okay. This is what I want to say. I really do, really do. This is one of those movies, especially that I loved. 
And I think that the movie is pretty faithful to the book. It is incredibly faithful to the book. I mean, you've got Judy Dench's character, Eleanor Tavish. Lavish. Lavish. Um, Eleanor Lavish doing some, like, doing, like, some of the things that she did to Lucy, she actually did to Charlotte in this book. But I think for the movie, it, it worked better because you are better able to see um, Charlotte and Eleanor's relationship. So it makes more sense as things kind of go down the line. But, but I never felt like I got to know Lucy in the book or the movie. In the book, you see, in the book, I felt like I got to, I mean, I showed you my notes. Um, They are embarrassing. Yeah, I, I made I made about seven or eight pages of handwritten notes while I was reading the book. And one of the things I found about her found was in the film, you actually can tell how her character is feeling from her hairstyle. Up, down, yes. Especially when you see when she goes to stay with Cecil, oh my God, he's horrible, and his mother, who's probably just as bad. Um, you don't really see very much of her at all, and she's um, a mere mention, really, in the book. There's a certain line that annoys me that comes from her, but that's neither here nor there. She's mirroring his mother mm-hmm. with the hairstyle. It's very prim and proper. It looks like something out of um, oh. They had the Gibson girl hairstyle. The, it's, it was the it the it's hairstyle reminds me of the owner of the Siamese cats in Lady and the Tramp, which is also the wicked stepmother in Cinderella. But anyway, yeah, exactly. It's that it's a Gibson kind girl. of hairstyle. It's a Gibson yeah, girl. it's that kind of hairstyle. She and then when she's with George, she's far more relaxed. Her hair is down. It's more girlish, more um, natural, mm-hmm. more her. I mean, you do see she has a lot of humor. And I think that many things that she does are in reaction to how other people are acting around her. Right. And for me, that is why I have a really difficult time knowing Lucy, because she is so acted upon right it seems like everything she's acted upon and and she find and, and in the movie it seems very clear that it's a happily ever after and they're very happy with one another and they're back at the pensione and um they're in Italy I, they have that. At, at the same place and saying, you know, oh, it's like the, they have just another set of us basically here. And that's fine. But, and, and I finally feel like I've, I've gotten a handle on her in the movie um, or even, excuse me, even from the book and the movie, I finally feel like I've got a handle on her and who she wants to be and who she can be with, especially with George by the end. But, it's like she's forcing herself into these uh, specific roles that pe- different people expect her to play. And you get hints of that because, you know, her playing, her piano playing is very passionate. And it's not that it's, it's not that it is the most 
enthralling piano playing in the world. It's just that she put so much of her personality into her piano playing. And, and that's where you see sort of glimpses of this personality of this woman that she can become. And it really is, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, very much a coming of age story. Yeah, it definitely and, is. And, and I, I like coming of age stories. But she just seems so acted upon for so long. And, and early on in the book and in the movie, I'm like, girl, girl, you do you. You know what I mean? And I think that's just, you know, 21st century woman being very impatient with a early 20th century woman. But it did, to me, feel very... It, I'm going to say this, and it might be controversial. To me, it felt like she was a woman written by a man. Well, she was. I know. <laughs> But that came through. That yeah. came through. That this is a romance novel written by a man. And I but don't... at the same time, he manages to inject a lot of elements of romance into it, I think. But they actually come from very strange sources. Mm -hmm. I think one of the strangest um, finds I had in the book... Oh, my God, I've got so many notes... The um the the narrator I love the narrator comments. Yeah, I do too. I wish they had been in my volume. It wasn't clear when it switched to the narrator and then back. I wish that had been more clear in my volume, yeah. but it wasn't. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, in um one of them is quite. I found it quite amusing. And it says, it's a, it is obvious enough for the reader to yep. conclude she loves young Emerson. A reader in Lucy's place would not find it obvious. Life is easy to chronicle, but bewildering to practice. And we welcome nerves or any other shibboleth that will cloak our personal desire. She loved Cecil. George made her nervous. Will the reader explain to her that the phrases should have been reversed? I love things like that. They just come out of almost nowhere. But it would have been and helpful then, if they didn't. <laughs> if I'd yeah. known. Like, it took, every time the narrator popped up, it took me a minute to realize, oh, this is the narrator. And I think it was just the volume of the book I read. Because I read it in a, a, a compilation volume of three books by E.M. Forster. And it was the middle book. And, and I just was like, wait, what just happened? So I think it's just the edition that I read. Yeah, you see, I've got this one is a reprint of the edition that was originally produced in 1955. So about 40 years after the book was released, if actually not even that. Um, another one, I think the realization of love actually comes from Mr. Emerson, George's father. Yeah, old Mr. Emerson. Is, I loved Mr. Emerson, old Mr. Emerson. Even in the film, he's so well acted and mm. he's endearing. Mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. something charming about him and you know that people i absolutely hated mr eager but we all go there later but it's the way he's um he says to her when she when lucy decides she calls off her engagement to sissel so relieved but she says please release me it's like he's holding her prisoner and maybe mm -hmm. she feels like she's been held prisoner and she goes to tell um mr emerson don't move out i'm going to greece and he says, you are leaving him. You are leaving the man you love. And it's almost at this point that you realize that she's talking. She's talking about George and he's talking about his assumptions regarding Cecil. And she says, I had to. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he starts 
It's, but um, then he says, I think he puts it well, man has to pick up the use of his functions as he goes along, especially the function of love. Then he burst out excitedly. That's it. That's what I mean. You love George. And he's the one that tells her, even though she's sort of realized it, his words to her are what really bring it home that all along she's been resisting this attraction she has to him because she doesn't feel that anybody would approve of it. And in a way, she's horrified at her own actions. Right. I have a question about Lucy and and where the book says that they are basically just middle class gentry, right? Like, well, her father, her father he was, was a solicitor. solicitor. Yeah. So where does that real? But apparently, he was well off, right? So where does that actually put her in the social strata? Well, it puts her thinking about it. She is still, she's not working class because working class would be uneducated. So she'd probably be upper middle. Okay. And so what is George? Just middle? Well, his father was educated. And he was educated. And he's not, he was educated. But at the same time, he works on the railways, but we never know where on the railways or how on the yes, railways. Yes, we do. He's a clerk. He's a clerk on the railways and what his father was a journalist. It means that he works and he doesn't work on the actual railway lines. He's not a driver or a, um, a porter or anything, which, right. oh, that so angered me. They, the immediate assumption, because they didn't speak like everybody else in Italy, that, oh, he, he works on the railways. He must be a porter. Right, and I was thinking, I don't think so. But anyway, okay, so... No, you don't find out until later on what he actually does on the railways. Okay, I missed it, because I, I, I wasn't sure. So he's a... Yeah, I, I read it quite intently this time around. I mean, I always do, but I did read it quite deeply, as you can tell from the notes. Mm. But um, it makes him middle class, maybe lower middle class. But then if he marries her, she's got money, so that'll make him... Yeah, she inherits... That's the thing. She says, oh, I she says to her mother... I next year. Yeah, so I will spend more time traveling. And her mother is heartbroken, but at the same time, she's relieved that she's not going to marry Cecil. <laughs> yes, she's like... <laughs> Which I find quite funny. That's great, yeah. but... Yeah. Yeah, but now what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, so it's quite nice to see that everybody supports her in the fact that she's quit Cecil but then she runs off with George and in the book it's clear they, that this isn't they eloped. that it's mostly an elopement although she says it's yeah. not um yeah. and it's not so clear in the it's not so film. clear in the film in the film it seems like everyone is very supportive um so yeah um, I don't care I love the fact that they end up together. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I would be, I'm a happily ever after junkie. I would not be okay with her ending up with Cecil. I say there was Cecil. About, yeah, there was something about him that I always remembered when I was rereading the book. And, bef and even before I picked up the book again, I found him loathsome. But there are quite a few loathsome characters in this book. Mr. Eager is definitely loathsome. I'd say, she, oh, see, I ha, uh, I mean, you saw the messages I sent you yesterday. Yeah. I really don't like Charlotte. And I know that it sounds really strange because Charlotte is um, 
played by Maggie Smith in the film and played very well. I mean, they have an incredible cast in the they film. They really do. Yeah, they, they have an amazing cast. And Maggie Smith plays Charlotte, Lucy's older cousin. And there seems to be... It's almost like she is she's incredibly two-faced. Mm-hmm. Incredibly two-faced. She is on the surface, she's oh you must have this, you must have that, but then underneath there's these little undertones like um when they're out she in knows, the field, she's resentful. <laughs> she's incredibly resentful and there's those little undertones of when she says they uh, the whole th- it's strange the whole thing starts over literally a room with a view. She is very passive aggressive. Don't worry about my cough. It is altogether. It's not from sitting on the ground. I'll stand up if it gets bad. Yeah, I'll stand up if it gets bad. So, of course, you know, Lucy can't let her sit on the ground kind of thing. I mean, she's just very manipulative. uh, And also, I'll have the bigger room because it belonged to the the sun. It didn't. If you read the book, they end up in the smaller room when they go back to the pension after they're married and he says, Oh, this is my room. We're in my, it's funny. We're in my old room. And she says, Oh, but, but Charlotte said that the bigger room was yours. And we know that the bigger room wasn't his. And she probably knew the bigger room wasn't his, but she wanted it. So she used that as a, a way to manipulate Lucy into accepting the smaller room all along. And also Lucy probably actually cared. Head and she also yeah. betrayed her trust. Yes, she did. Now, so many times. But oh. but that having been said, the movie is kinder to Charlotte. Oh yes. The movie is much is. kinder to Charlotte than the book is, which I find interesting. Um and yeah. And and I don't think as you said, I don't think they could have picked a better cast for this this uh film now very very young helena bonham carter plays lucy right (laughs) yes it's crazy (laughs) this is the helena bonham carter of lady jane gray right it is indeed it's not the lady it's not the helena bonham carter of um harry potter or or, um alice in wonderland (laughs) or really any any of the helena bonham carters that staggers out of the limo you know for the award shows and some the wild hair and wild these. hair, wild dress, wild shoes. It's not even the <laughs> Helen and Bottom Carter of the uh, of the fairy godmother in the live action Cinderella, but I like Helen Bottom Carter. By the way, I'm not yes. being critical. Um, but it, it is just I don't like love triangles. It just as a general rule of thumb, they are not my jam. But this really isn't really a love triangle. No, it's not because she and and I. I guess I'm just. So I guess I'm wondering if this had been real life and it went the way the book said, would they have then retired back to England? He would have continued being a clerk on the railroad and but just in slightly better circumstances. I don't know because I get the feeling that whatever happens that she talks about how her family isn't massively supportive of it but his father i don't imagine would be disapproving because he no he he no 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 he would have been entirely uprooting. that's 
that's one of the things I found quite interesting about the film. We sense the dislike and the animosity between Mr. Eager and Mr. Emerson when they meet in the church. Mm-hmm. But there's no accusations made against him in the film as there are in the book. Right. This is just... He's just... Mr. Eager is like the stereotypical, terrible, terrible preacher. He's know? Mr. Collins. He is. I know it sounds that really weird. Correct. I, was, I was looking at the book and the first thing when I, when we, in fact, I actually wrote it down. Um, Reverend Beebe is someone people defer to and he's played amazingly by Simon Callow in the film. He offers guidance to people and they respect him for it, e.g. Miss Bartlett, but he isn't staid and serious and can relate to the younger characters such as Lucy and Freddie when they all go for that um, incredibly eye-opening dip. Um, He's a total contrast to the religious characters that we find in Austin, e.g. Mr. Collins and Mr. Elton. However, that is who I see when I see Mr. Eager. Because that is the stereotype, even a hundred years on, of yeah. what a priest, a British, an Anglican priest would look like or act like or a vicar, whatever you, whatever. Yes, yeah, C of E. You so, yeah, and I'm not a member of the C of E, so I don't know exactly. Well, but Well, no, you can't be. No, I can't. Well, I'm actually, te- I'm. I'm Episcopalian, which is the Church of England in the United States. But we were recognized by the Scottish Church first, so there's that. <laughs> no, this is this is one of those where I look at it and I'm like, oh, it was just I love it. It it I am a sucker for period pieces anyway, so Emma, Pride and Prejudice this kind of goes in that same vein. I mean, because I mean, yes, it's a hundred years after Austin, but I really do enjoy even seeing like these late Victorian, early Edwardian fashions and all that stuff. I really enjoy that. Um, And, and it's interesting kind of this push pull with between societal expectations and personal desires and expectations. So I really do enjoy that on a lot of levels. And as I said, my concerns or questions for me, it really did this book because it was written by a man from 1900. It felt like it was a romance written by a man. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that that's how it felt. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, totally. So, I mean, for me, it felt very, the prose was incredibly poetic rather mm -hmm. than, I mean, you think about a lot of the romances written today by men and I don't, they, oh, there have been quite a few and I've, I've picked up a couple, not necessarily by accident, but unintentionally. And the romance seems incredibly shallow uh-huh. Whereas there's something deep about the character. I mean, Forster, for all that you can tell that it is a romance written by a man, Forster has a way with words that cannot be denied, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His, he is, his prose is almost poet, poetic. It's like reading a smooth song. And that's mm-hmm. what I love about the book. It is one of those that you can pick up 
I struggled to put it down, but I had to because I want, I was desperately tired last night and I was about 50 pages from the end and I was literally lying there with the book on my face because I was exhausted. So I thought, right, I'm going to get up early this morning and I'm going to finish it and then I'm going to watch the film and I'm going to finish watching the film after we finish recording. But it is one of those books that all I could think was he made me actually fall in love with his characters and no matter what I don't know it's not just Julian Sands in the film it is George in the book no that oh god no that that really doesn't hurt him with his foppish hair and the the strange smile and everything and he was a very 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 handsome man in his youth and oh dear lord does he have a nice pert bottom but that's neither here nor and you see him completely naked which is really strange especially as this film's a PG, but we don't even need to go there either. Apparently they've the cut way... that out. <laughs> yeah, you the... said, but they haven't cut it out of my version, so I don't care. And it's also well, currently, cut... if you're in the UK, you can stream it on Channel 4 right now. Well, it it is streaming. I, I rented it from Amazon. I streamed it from Amazon. And I had initially been doing some research and perhaps going to get the DVD and a I don't know if I... Did I already say this on the podcast? You did okay, indeed. Sorry. That they cut it. Yeah, and it was very strange. So I didn't even know if I would see that scene again when I streamed it, but I did. So... Well, that's something. And that's the thing, as I said, they are in the UK. It was originally funded partially by Channel 4. Mm-hmm. So if you go on to Channel 4 right now, literally right now it's only airing for the next 27 days from today which is the 8th of may and it is on film four as a streaming option for free in the uk however i just watched it on dvd (laughs) let me let me just say this to you you if for anyone who's an american listening to this this is very british Right. This is very British. And you just need to be aware of that going in. And if you like it, great. You know, you, you if you like British period pieces, you, this is going to be your jam. But if you're not big into British period pieces, you may or may not enjoy it. You See, know? That's the, that's the fun, that is something that I agree with completely. Because if you look at um, the films that we've talked about previously in fact the majority of the films and the books we've talked about previously they've either been modern or the films themselves have been american or they've been based on british novels and made for an american audience Mm -hmm. because look at emma Mm -hmm. emma was the lead character was played by a well-known american actress Mm mm-hmm um the accent was not very good but that's neither here nor that's just my view um her accent has got so much better in the english if you watch um sliding doors but i apologize gwyneth paltrow's um, english accent in emma was not the best however they were english books made made into movies with an american audience in mind because the american audience is bigger however a room with a view was um a completely English crew, a completely English cast, and... With snarky comments about Americans, by the way. 
added in just for flavor. Oh yeah, but fun. yeah, but they're in, yes, but they're in the book. Those, yes, I know those particulars, and it is just the way I think it is the way that. If you, I'm trying to think. I've read quite a For few books. For the record, you... Mr. Eager was way more insulting of the American in the movie than he was the he book. Was in the book. And I was like... Yeah, but then they were also insulting about the British tourist. Yes, I know. But I'm an American, and I'm sorry, I noticed his way more insulting attitude towards the American in the yeah, then... movie than the book, okay? If you, if you look at those saying that, if you look at the comments that both Miss Lavish and Mr. Eager make, Miss uh, to make it much easier to understand, um, Eleanor Lavish and Reverend Eager, who we keep on referring to as Mr. because that's what they tend to be called, because they aren't, they aren't priests, they are vicars, they get called Mr. Anyway, they are both British subjects, living in Italy. They're expats. So they, they're expats and they have such a judgmental view of British tourists or tourists in general. In fact, one of the things in the book, we've mentioned a few times that there are certain things that they gave um, certain elements of the book that they passed over to Charlotte and Miss Lavish rather than Lucy and Miss Lavish. And in the book, Lucy is relying on her Baedeker, mm-hmm. as we were talking, her, her guidebook. And Miss Lavish takes it away from her and then leaves her stranded in the middle of Florence with no clue where she is, no clue how to get back to the pension, no Italian... Which is really not well done of Miss Lavish. Really not well done of Miss Lavish. And if Charlotte were a good chaperone, she would have absolutely had nothing to do with Miss Lavish after that. (laughs) I'm just saying. It's it's only, the thing is, only after Charlotte is caught having betrayed Lucy's trust that she says, she declares... I won't speak with Miss Lavish again. Yeah. But Miss Lavish so, won't care because she got the story that she, she needed exactly already. She wants, yeah, exactly. And she, in the film, she even declares her intention to use Lucy. Yep. I've got my eye She on doesn't her. so much declare it in the book. Yeah. But she does declare in the film, oh, I have my eye on your young cousin. Mm-hmm. I, fe- I feel that she will be, ide- she will be perfect for an adventure. Mm-hmm. And you sit there thinking, what have you got in mind for her? She's an ingenue. She's completely innocent, has no awareness of the world. And you're telling her so-called chaperone that you intend to almost use her. And Charl- I think Charlotte is so desperate for the approval of a woman she seems seems to believe is her peer. Mm-hmm. Or even her superior, perhaps, mm-hmm. that she confides in her when she barely knows her. Right. They're vicious gossips. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I. Th- I'm sure that we've managed to confuse you if you've never seen this movie, but. I've all read the book. Yeah. So the action goes, it opens in Florence, and then the book has, they leave for Rome after, okay, so they go out on a 
day trip, basically, in carriages. Mr. Eager is there. Mr. Beebe is there. And so, and the Emersons are there. And the Emersons are there. And the men and the women kind of split up. But then Lucy kind of gets shooed away from Lavish and Charlotte, Miss Bartlett. And because, you know, (laughs) I've had this call forever. I'm sure it has nothing to do with sitting on the ground. And then... yeah, they want to gossip, and so, but you can't do that in front of the ingenue, and so Lucy kind of sighs and goes away, and she stumbles upon, she literally stumbles, right? She literally stumbles in the book. No, she's, but, she's taken to, um, she goes to the driver. Who takes her to Mr. Emerson, the young Mr. Her, Emerson. Yes, takes her to George. And she, he kisses her, and then her chaperone shows up and is like, Lucy. And they go back. George walks back to the pensione from however far away they are. And they, they being Charlotte and Lucy depart in, in a rush the next morning. And so then we don't see what happens in Rome at all. Which is fine because you know, we know that she's gone to visit Cecil and his mother. Yeah, she. Well, I thought she met him in Rome. No, she. Um, she went. Um, in the book, they go to Rome because she knows that Cecil's there okay. with his mother. She's received a letter informing her that he's there. Okay. In Rome, and then the action opens again in England. And Cecil comes in from the garden telling Freddie and Mrs. Honeychurch she has accepted me. And Freddie is not excited. Freddie's like, oh, well, cripes. Freddie had already basically said he asked Freddie's approval. Right. And Freddie, the way that he asked for his approval is just... Wouldn't it be wonderful? A- yeah. Wouldn't it be wonderful for Lucy and for this area if I married her? And Freddie's like, no. I think there's an... There is another thing, there is another thing that he says in the book and I just read it and I had to reread it because I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so, I just read it and thought, what? <laughs> so Lucy is engaged to Cecil, who is unbearably high in the instep. Uh he is a sn- uh, he's a snob, he's supercilious, but he in is book, dignified. Him, in the book the the narrator refers to him as her fiasco rather than her fiance. Right. And which he, I find quite amusing. Yes. And so then there's a villa to let in the village and so on and so forth. And the Emersons take that. Um, and so it's and lots of very... That. I know. All sorts of unbelievable coincidences. It's fate, as George would say. Yes. And so George comes back into her... Uh, into her orbit and um, and Charlotte of course shows back up because she's having the boiler fixed at her house and nobody really wants her there and so anyway um, eventually um, all sorts of things happen right not anything like major but George kisses her again and then she... That kiss was just... <sighs> and and then, it's in, in the film, they make it look like she pushes him away only when she sees Cecil. Yeah, exactly. And so um, she 
firmly breaks it off with George, but then she realizes when Cecil won't play tennis with her brother and his friend that he's really... And it's also the way he starts talking about her mother. Yeah. I mean, he's so derogatory about everybody she knows. Yeah, it doesn't like Freddie, doesn't like... To a certain point... Doesn't like Mr. Beeb. Do you even like me, you know? Yeah, it's kind of like, well... The thing is, though, you read many of the things that he says and he calls her his um, Da Vinci, doesn't he? Yes. You're a Da Vinci. No, yeah, you're a Da Vinci. You're a Da Vinci. And then there's one thing. When she's staying with him and his mother in London and he says, oh, yeah, I've got a note here. Mr. Eager is horrible and it's in capital letters. Um when she stays with his mother mm-hmm. and it is oh after she's seen that his attitude to sir henry she discovered something here we go lucy is becoming wonderful mhm and there is that whole thing when her mother says oh you must um must marry her soon Yep. And then says, oh, she's getting rid of the... Hun- she's losing the Honeychurch taint. Yes. So, and that's what <sighs> I meant about her. She, in the in the book and the movie, it seems like she's acted upon so much. And it's not until the very end where she actually does the acting. Like, she's the one who finally... No, this is what I'm going to do, kind of thing. And... Yeah. I mean, she rebelled big time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's when, not just a tiny act of rebellion at the end of it. It's yeah. a massive, my entire family isn't speaking to me, but I've done what I want to do. Mm-hmm. To be fair, I'd do that for George. <laughs> so that's what happens. She, she calls off the engagement with Cecil and then, or Cecil, I don't know how. She 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 actually doesn't she she says that I want you to release me. They are her exact words. I want you to release me from this engagement. It's not I I want to end it. I want you to release me. And it's like wow, that really says how she feels about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the point where you start to realize she's thinking for herself now. Mm-hmm. And so the engagement's called off. And at this point, George has already made arrangements for his father to to leave Windy Corner and because he just can't stand the thought of being anywhere near her because it breaks his heart every time. And which is how romantic is that, that he cares that much? That he, anyway, so, yeah, this, that, and the other happens. And she comes to realize that she loves George as we've said, because Mr. Emerson helps her realize that. And we don't actually see in the book or the movie them getting back together again. We just see that they have because they are at the pension in Florence. And we must assume that they're going to be okay financially because she comes into her money and, and you know. And he has a job. It's not as he though has a he's job, not. Yeah. And the so. thing is, the fact that he has a flat in London and his father is living in the country. Mm-hmm doesn't say to me that they are impoverished in any way they're just not as potentially as well off as many of the other people that they are in 
social circles with. Right. So the honey churches are probably higher on the social rung. And I think the honey churches are come around <laughs> because Miss Honey Church does love her daughter. That's clear, right? Oh, yeah. She loves and her she daughter. Also, and and Freddie loves his her- sister. I mean, it's very clear that they're going to come around. They're not, and they're not like, Members of the aristocracy that are going to sit in judgment on her for marrying a man who is a step below them on the social ladder. That's just not who they are. No. Because actually, actually, uh, Miss Honeychurch probably operates above her station, according to the book, at least. Like, people mistook them for being uh, the remnants of gentry when, in fact, they were not, you know. No. Exactly. That's the thing. That's it. I find that it is almost like a a story of contrasts. Mm-hmm. You've got Reverend Beebe and Reverend Eager. Mm-hmm. You've got George and Cecil. Mm-hmm. Then you've got Lucy and Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds weird, but quite often towards the end of the book, in fact, there's a very, very good line after... Lucy has finished things with Cecil and obviously she's told George she wants nothing to do with him because she doesn't love him, even though we can quite see, clearly see she does. There is that, there is a, there is one line after all that happens. That is, she goes to bed as Charlotte did 30 years previously. Mm hmm. And then her mother even starts saying things like, oh, that's exactly like Charlotte. You're sounding like Charlotte. So there are those clear comparisons between the two. And in the film, film, more is made of the fact that it seems like Charlotte is the way she is, not because of anything other than the fact that she actually herself had a disastrous love affair. Mm -hmm. Maybe when she was around Lucy's age. Mm Mm-hmm. So at that point, you start thinking, maybe I should feel sorry for her. And then you realize all the things she's done and you think, no. <laughs> um, I I don't have quite the level of contempt for Charlotte you do. But, but that having been said, I think you're absolutely right when it comes to the study and contrast. And I think it's very clear that if, if she had gone off to Greece with the Mrs. Allen... She yeah. would have become Charlotte. She would have been Freddie's daughter's chaperone at her tour of Italy. Yeah. 20 years She'd have been, in the future. Yeah. So. 20 or 30 years down the line, she would have been living a, living the life of a spinster. And mm-hmm. that was that is what she seems intent on doing until she speaks with Mr. Emerson. She, in fact, she even says, oh, I'm, I'm never going to get married. I'm going to be on my own. Mm-hmm. She has that. That is my decision, because as far as she's concerned, it's almost as though you have two choices. There are two paths for you to take. Cecil. She's been down what? Yeah. Cecil or marriage in general and being a spinster like no, Charlotte. No, I think I think for her in her head, when she called it off with Cecil, that was it. That was it, that she was she was giving up on marriage in general because, you know, I, I think she, yeah, I think she was giving up on marriage in general and saying, okay, obviously I'm destined to be a Spencer. And I don't think she seriously considered George as an option until Mr. Emerson said. But you're in love with him. But you're in love with him. And, and that is what I'm 
sort of malfunctioning about over here is that is that she has trouble I guess even knowing her own mind I don't know and that frustrates me like yeah but then at the same time I think that it's so sudden and she's been Charlotte keeps on telling her the funny thing is in in the book they actually lay um lay the success of their escape at Charlotte's hands after all of it which is Mm -hmm. quite funny yeah but but at the same time Lucy hasn't an awareness we've already said that she is she doesn't know her own she doesn't know herself Mm-hmm. There are certain sparks of life that come through in her, like when she's playing tennis and when she speaks with George and tells him, I don't love you. And then she tells Cecil using George's words, you don't know how to be intimate with a woman. And and that's the thing, like those aren't her words. <laughs> but at the same time, it's when it's, it's him saying it to her that makes her suddenly realize that she was making the wrong choices for herself. So his telling her that gives her the confidence to act on it. Mm-hmm. I don't think if, if he hadn't said it to her, she'd have probably ended up married to Cecil, living under the watchful eye of her mother-in-law with four little children that are like their father. Ew. Yeah, your face says it all. But that is what they'd have ended up like because mm. she didn't because he didn't say it to her. And the thing I think that what we need to what is very, very difficult for us as twenty first century women is to realise this took place before women had the vote. This took place before suffrage, before women true. were allowed true, true, any true, true, independence. True. But true, I also true, find true. it really frustrating. Her mother runs their home. There is no father on the in the picture any longer because he's died. Yet her mother isn't even encouraging her daughter to be independent or think for herself. Right. No, it's true. It's true. All right. Well, we have really dug into this. We are almost an hour in, so we probably need to call it a halt. Um, <laughs> I don't even know whose choice it is for the next one was- for June. I can't remember because this was kind of decided upon because we were talking about Emma and kept on getting distracted with talk of a room with a view. <laughs> so we need to make a decision on we do what we're going to read for June. Bearing okay. in mind we're still on shutdown and that means that anything we get cannot be from a library because we haven't got one. Unless it's... Unless it's electronic. I think we need to go modern. I agree. We've done two. We have now done two old old books. One 19th century and one 20th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and early 20th. Like early 20th. <laughs> yeah, I know. But they, to be fair, most of them were the best. Um, so... Where's my library? Why don't we decide off podcast, because we don't need people to listen to our ruminations, uh, what we're going to do, and we can just post it on Twitter. Would that work? Yeah, it should do. Yeah. 
We'll just post on Twitter what we're going to do next. There, By the way, when we talk about chili pepper ratings, there is no chili pepper rating for this book. Like, the movie has some full frontal male nudity in it, so heads up on that if you're watching it with your kids. But there's no chili pepper rating. Like, there's no... (laughs) That's the thing that I find really funny. The full frontal nudity is so innocent in a way. I mean, this movie is a PG-rated movie. And the full frontal nudity is not in any way gratuitous. No, I, it, it's. I just wanted to give people a heads up. That's all. Yeah. Like, I would probably not want my younger daughters to see this. Like, <laughs> sorry, y'all. You don't need. You know, I don't want necessarily to see that scene. But you know, everything else in this movie is completely, completely about. You know, no big deal. I think Sarah Kate would love it. Maybe we'll see. We'll see. All right. So we will tweet out what book we're going to do for everyone who wants to know or movie or whatever we decide on and for June. And we will pop back in in June. So, yeah. Um, Ray, how can people find you? And uh, us? People can find Yeah, people. Okay. <laughs> people can find us on at ISN Romance on Twitter. They can find us romancenotdead.wordpress.com. They can also find us on Facebook if you search for Romance Isn't Dead. We're on YouTube. All of our um, podcast episodes are on YouTube. They're not video recordings of us chatting, though we could do that because neither of us are ever in a fit human state to be seen by anybody when we record because it's normally very early on a Sunday morning. Um, (laughs) Sally's looking at me and agreeing. Um, And I think that's it for the podcast. And you can find me at All About Ray on Twitter and I'm actually a bit more active on there right now because well it's a place to keep sane if you are in the right corners okay <laughs> I'm not in the right corner of the Twitter world by the oh, way oh god no you, re- you really aren't because you do tweets about Star Wars it is not a safe place it is not for the faint of heart Especially if you are a female Star Wars fan who likes romance, man, it is it is uh, it is a um, it's a it's scary world out there. You have to curate your experience. So anyway, I am Palmetto Blue on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to find me in either of those places, if you find me on Instagram, I'm sorry, it's mostly fiber crafting. Just give you a heads up. Occasional Star Wars post or whatnot. But um, <laughs> I've gotten Ray into some fiber crafting as well. I'll totally take credit. And uh, so anyway, Palmetto Blue, Twitter and Instagram. And Ray, how would you sign out today? Keep on searching for your happily ever after. And I would remind you that romance isn't dead. It's alive and well on your bookshelf. Bye. Bye. Bye.